morning. Let's turn together to Acts 19, continuing this saga of Paul in Ephesus, verses 11 to 20, concerning the sons of Sceva. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was the and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Profitable be the word of the Lord this morning. Thank you, JT. You may be seated. So as the scripture was being read in first service, a former senior pastor of Delaware Bible Church who shall remain nameless was laughing. And uh, I got up in the pulpit and I said, okay, the former senior pastor is laughing as the scripture is read on Mother's Day, the seven sons of Sceva. I said, are you laughing because that's what we're studying today? And he said, absolutely I am. I know what you're thinking. Why would you pick? Why would we study this on Mother's Day? Well, in God's providence, this is the next section of the book of Acts, and so we're working our way through Acts, and so that's what we're, we're doing today. But I assure you there's a tie, there's a link between this passage and Mother's Day, and here it is. Today, one time only, this has never happened at Delaware Bible Church today, this, time, this day only, free exorcisms to all you mothers out there. Now, you can apply that you can apply that in however way you wish. So, for example, perhaps you have a husband who needs a little work, okay? Maybe you think he's demon-possessed. Come see one of the pastors. We'll take care of that for you. Perhaps your children are the ticket. They're, you just want a mass exorcism of your children. I don't know. Uh, maybe you have a mother-in-law that's afflicting you and uh, needs some help there. I'm kidding, Okay. I'm kidding, this is not, this is, this is for laughs, don't get excited. It is Mother's Day, and I had the honor uh, yesterday of spending a good chunk of time with my own mother. I was helping my daughter in Chicago move to our new apartment yesterday, and so I got back in late last night, and I spent the time, with, I picked up my mom in Indiana on the way, and she helped out some with that endeavor, and uh, I love my mother so much, and here's what I love about my mom. Uh, I have the privilege as a human being of growing up in a household where I, I always, always, always 
Two things were true at the same time. I always, always, always knew that I was loved. And my understanding is, is that there are homes where that is not the case. I always felt that I was loved in my home. Secondly, I always knew when I was wrong. My mom made that very clear. Sometimes with a spoon or spatula. So all you kids out there that think that you're suffering under the hands of a, of a bad mother because uh, every once in a while she gets out the spoon or spatula. Uh, I turned out okay. <laughs> okay, I love my mom. Why are we as human beings so fascinated with magic? And there are layers to this, right? There, there are layers to this. Sometimes we may be going to the shopping mall at holiday season, Christmas time, and there's, you see all the people circling because there's no parking spots. And you drive up to the shopping mall just kind of already pre-deflated because you know what the situation is going to be. And then all of a sudden, the person with the parking spot right next to the door of the place where you want to go in backs out. And it's not a special spot. It's not for people with special needs or anything. It's, it's open. No label. And you pull right in, and it feels like magic. <laughs> That's a joke. Okay. But when you go to, okay, so let's say that you go to a magic show. You take your, maybe you take the kids, and you go see a magician perform. You have a, a deal with that person, right? The deal is, is that y you know, and they know that you know, that they're, they're just doing a trick, they're, they're doing a sleight of hand. They're getting your attention over here while something's going on behind their back. There's something already up their sleeve. There's a trap door somewhere. There's something concealed by the puff of smoke that just happened. So the deal is, is that they perform their, tr their craft well. You're entertained. And you ride home with your spouse and the children going, how did they do that? That's kind of a different layer or a different level when we talk about magic. Sometimes it's magic in terms of like, uh, you know, the, uh, the Hallmark Christmas specials, you know. The ladies are laughing because they know where I'm going with this, right? The, this, uh, this love interest that's been just being tortured in front of us for like an hour, you know, just this big long process of, does he like me? I don't know. Does she like me? I don't know. And, you know, somebody starts a business and it fails and somebody... Uh, and then they arrive at the town square that's apparently never had a chip of paint fall off the split rail fence or the gazebo is in perfect working order with freshly arranged flowers in the winter. <laughs> and their eyes meet. They've got on tailored custom fit clothing and they've got the perfect hair. Her hair is whisking in the breeze. And their eyes meet and the snow begins to fall and they meet in front of the gazebo for the perfect kiss and the beginning of a life together. For, it's magic. Usually, but not always, uh, we talk about magic in terms of things that are fantastic, that are amazing. Sometimes we use it just for sports players, right? Magic Johnson was a famous basketball player when I was growing up. But typically the... The, the thing about magic is, is this. There's something that we want in life, and 
Maybe it's Aladdin and the magic lamp where Aladdin rubs the lamp and the genie comes out and, and promises three wish or grants his three wishes. And what do you wish for? You wish for money, right? You wish for comfort. You wish for power, fame, something like that. It's typically the magic stories, the, the narratives that we tell ourselves are you're just a, a common everyday person, something magical happens, and you get something that you want with no effort on your own. If any stories are not like that, it's kind of, a, you're, you're watching, if it's ironic, you're watching an episode of The Twilight Zone, you might want to turn it before you get freaked out, okay? In other words, you wish for something that you really want, and then it gets turned around on you and, and, and bites you. Well, the title of today's sermon is The Gospel is Better Than Magic, and um, uh, there's a lot in this passage. We're just going to, we're not going to get terribly deep into it, but really what I want to fight, <clears throat> excuse me, what I want to fight against today is theological gullibility. Theologi Randy Patton talked about this all the time, one of, one of the guys that trained me in biblical counseling. Theological gullibility, that's what we want to fight against today, and we're going to see a little bit of that going on in the text here. So the, the big question we're going to wrestle with is how can Acts 19 help us to be more discerning in this life? Discerning in this life. <clears throat> a couple, three points to work through. First of all, we see Paul is the miracle worker, right? I mean, what, what do we read in the text? It says that God was doing extraordinary, this is Acts 19.11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. This word that is translated in our English Standard, this phrase that's translated in our English Standard Version, extraordinary miracles, in the Greek is, is literally acts of power. Paul was performing acts of power. The word is dunamis. You've probably heard that before in other sermons. Uh, he was performing acts of power. Now, this is not unusual uh, these things that Paul is doing are not super unusual. In other words, there's other examples of this in the New Testament. For example, Jesus, uh, would pe people would touch the hem of his garment and would be healed. Matthew 4, 14, sorry, Matthew 14, 35, 36 says, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all that were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. So Jesus did similar kinds of things that Paul did. Also in, in Acts 5, earlier in the book of Acts, we saw this whole deal with Peter's shadow. Acts 5.15 says, So they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now it doesn't really tell us whether or who was healed or anything like that, but it says that, you know, that that the shadow, they wanted, they wanted to get just close to Peter. They felt the power coming off of him would heal him. Now, I feel compelled to share with you once again why these level of miracles were happening back in this, these early days of the church, but they don't happen today. Why we don't see them today. We, now, make no mistake, we have people who claim that they're happening today, but their claims fall short when we get, try to get any kind of evidence or proof or anything like that. But why? Why these miracles? It is my contention, my best understanding of Scripture, that during this, these early days of the church, when, the, when 
The New Testament had not yet been written. Paul and Peter and even Jesus were performing these miracles to make it clear to everyone that, that these were God's men. These were guys carrying God's message and uh, having no New Testament to compare their message to, God chose to imbue them with the power to do these supernatural, power, supernatural things, uh, that, things that could not be explained by normal, you know, normal things. You know, if you build a house, you, you cut down trees, you, you saw the wood, you nail it. That's cool that you got a house at the end of the day, but that's not supernatural, right? You heal someone with a touch or with a handkerchief that once touched your skin and that person touches that handkerchief and they get healed, that's not normal. That's supernatural. Now, I want to just throw this in. As Paul gets older, as the New Testament starts to take shape in the form of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the rest of the books of the New Testament being letters written to churches, as this as the New Testament begins to take shape, as the Word of God becomes written down, Paul, later in his life, is struck with, famously, the thorn in the flesh, which he asked God three times to remove, and God chose not to. And so, you know, certainly Paul, it could be argued, could heal himself, but uh, it was not the case. And as the New Testament times drug on and, and went forward, these miracles, these, the, the early church fathers, for example, did not experience these things as the apostles did. Now, that's one facet of it, but also uh, Paul was operating in Ephesus, and Ephesus was not just a big city, a main city, a capital city, but it was also a center of spiritual things. The temple of Artemis, or Diana, was there. And that's kind of the same person, but looked at through two different cultures, Diana and Artemis. Diana was the, uh, the goddess of the hunt. She was the goddess of wild animals, the goddess of fertility, and the goddess of the moon. She was also claimed to be the twin sister of Apollo. And um, the practices that took place in her temple, here's a reconstruction or a replica of her temple uh, in that city were were pagan in nature, not God-fearing at all. And some would argue that they were even, that the practices that went on in that temple were um, degrading to human beings from a sexual standpoint. Not all scholars uh, agree on that, but here you just see some renderings of what the, the inside of the temple of Diana or Artemis might have looked like. And so it may have been in God's sovereign will to imbue Paul with extraordinary acts, these powerful acts, while he's operating in emphasis because there was such, there was such a, a worship of Diana, such a, a cult and a, even an industry, as we'll see next week, that had grown up around Diana that in order to break through and show that the, the true God, the one true God, is the God of Paul, not the God of Diana, that this was what God chose to do. So we see that Paul is able to do all these miracles. Now, the next thing we see in the text is uh, in verses 13 to 16, I just called it Naked and Afraid. Um, I think that's a TV show, isn't it? I, I see it in a commercial once. I never watched it. I, 
I, how do you show naked people on network television? I don't, it doesn't, they must not. I, anyway, uh, thir- <coughs> 13, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, by the way, I'm a word guy, and can I tell you that those three words in that order in the ESV make me happy. I don't know why. I think that if I ever start a rock band, we're going to be called the itinerant Jewish exorcists. That's going to be the name of the band. And we're going to cover Beatles songs like uh, uh, Get Back, you know, you know, as if you're an exorcist. Get back. No? Twist and shout? <laughs> to the demons? I don't know. Okay, never mind. Uh, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's a rough... That's a rough fail as a uh, Jewish, as a itinerant Jewish exorcist. I love that. I don't know why I like that Jewish, itinerant Jewish exorcist. Okay, so what do we see in this text? What do we see in this text? There's, a, there's quite a contrast here. We'll get to that in a minute. But we see, I, I call it engaging the, engage the cloaking device. What we see here is these guys are clearly not followers of Jesus Christ. They're not. They're itinerant Jewish exorcists. And yet, they see what Paul is able to do and how Paul is operating in the name of Jesus. And so, these men, itinerant means that they travel around. Jewish means that they're Jewish and not Christian, right? And uh, exorcist means that they, have, they claim to have the ability to cast out evil spirits. So, these itinerant Jewish exorcists choose to give themselves a little bit more juice, a little bit more mojo perhaps by they're saying we see what Paul's doing over there we're going to try the same thing we're going to invoke the name of Jesus the Jesus whom Paul proclaims we're going to add that to our practice and see how that goes interesting stuff now I, I want you to be I don't want you to be again theologically gullible look at 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light Satan is known one of his names is the deceiver Satan likes nothing more than to fool people into thinking that which is not true is true and vice versa and so you could imagine you could think about that Satan just loves it just loves it when People take something that is clearly pagan and wrap it in Christian look or feel or lingo or logos or whatever and proclaim that as being true or as being of Christ. I just want to say definitively that Jesus has nothing to do with magic. Nothing to do. With magic. Now, here's the ironic thing about that. Who spoke the world into existence by the word of his mouth? God did. There was no abracadabra. There was no alakazam. There was no incantation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. 
and so on and so forth. So the God who is able to do what to our eyes would be truly magic asks us not to operate our lives that way, but asks us to simply follow him according to his word. I need to give you some examples of what I'm talking about with this whole cloaking things and that are evil and Christian lingo. Um, right now, if you go on Amazon.com, and uh, let me just say this definitively, don't do this. Please don't do this. Don't give this to me as a Christmas gift. I don't want it. I'm going to burn it, okay? Don't give it to me as a birthday present or as a gag gift. Let's not use this as a white elephant. I don't want to mess with this stuff at all. Somebody has saw fit to make a board, like a game, uh, called a, a Holy Spirit board, which is basically a Ouija board. You know, a Ouija board it was big back in the 70s, and maybe I, I heard tell when I was a student in uh, school that my friends would get together, some of my friends would get together and play with a, a Ouija board. And the idea is that you sit there and you put your hands on this thing and you ask the spirits or whatever, you, maybe you conjure someone up and you ask that spirit to answer questions and then, you know, the spirit is supposedly moving your hands around and, and whatever, answering the questions. And some people got pretty flipped out by that um, because they thought that they saw something that was true or perhaps they were being moved around by an evil spirit. Who knows? The point of it is, does God tell us to operate our lives by consulting a Ouija board? Does he forbid that? He does. He instead says, look, I've given you my word. I've backed it up with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of my son. Follow me the way I'm telling you to follow me. That's what he says. Don't consult mediums and necromancers. And this is a form of the occult practices, right? This is demonic. Now, I would say, I will say this, that the... Um, this is a Ouija board that's been outfitted with Christian lingo so that you can supposedly talk to the Holy Spirit. Let me just guarantee everybody in the room, the spirit that you'll be talking to won't be the Holy One. And secondly, the reviews of this, there's lots of reviews written on Amazon. They're a trip to read. Uh, all the way from like all caps, this is satanic, to uh, somebody, I'm sure, joking, saying, oh yeah, I got the answers to all life's questions, and the Holy Spirit was really helpful, and got that new job I was looking for. Stay away from this stuff, right? But here's an, that's an example of uh, pagan things that are wrapped in Christian lingo. Years ago, I got a letter in the mail, and it was just in a regular envelope, and it was a folded up piece of paper just like the one I'm holding right now. And I opened, there was two pieces of paper in this envelope. And I opened up the first piece of paper and it was a Xerox copy of a handkerchief. And I thought, oh, well, this is interesting. So then I put that piece of paper down and I picked up the second piece of paper and it was a letter written to me. Looked like a form letter. Looked like the person, I know the person didn't know me personally because I didn't know them. And it claimed to be some sort of an evangelist person who had, who had made all these copies of this handkerchief and he had prayed over all these copies of this, of this uh, handkerchief, this special handkerchief. And he told me that if I took this copy of the handkerchief and rubbed it on the effective area, affected area, I would be healed. And then proceeded to tell me where I could send my 
my thank offering when that was completed. And I threw that in the trash. Because God doesn't tell me in his word to operate that way. He doesn't tell his pastors, his evangelists, his shepherds, his teachers to operate that way. This text that we're looking at this morning of Paul is descriptive of what's happening at a transitional time in history between the Old Testament and New Testament. That's what Acts is. It's called a hinge. It's the hinge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. These texts are descriptive of what happened, but they're not prescriptive of what we ought to be doing. So don't come up to me after a first service and say, Pastor, will you touch my handkerchief? Because I'm not going to do it, because it's not going to do anything. Now, you think that, listen, you guys are Delaware Bible Church. You're well taught in the Word of God, and I know you don't fall for this stuff. But I, I, I got to tell you, I, tr- I was traveling in Israel, <clears throat> and uh, I was at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So just every time that there's a, a, a discovered holy site, uh, it seems like the Roman Catholic Church puts up a, a church there. So this was the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, supposedly where Jesus was crucified. I think, yeah, where, where Jesus was crucified. And, and at the base, or at the, this is like, this is cross one, cross two, and cross three. The three crosses were here. And then down here, there's kind of a flat rock that sticks up out of the ground a few inches. And the Roman Catholic Church calls that the rock of unction. That's where they took Jesus' body after he had died on the cross, and they laid it on this rock before they, you know, wrapped him up and put him in the tomb the rock of unction, which is another facet of this holy site. So I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm listening to the tour guide, our tour guide, tell us about this church and the history of it, and when it was built, and all this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, this lady, young, she looked very young, maybe in her 20s. She was of Hispanic descent, and uh, she came to this rock of unction. She knelt down by it. She opened up her backpack. She pulled out a very, very large, like the jumbo size of uh, cotton balls in a plastic bag. Now, <clears throat> I've never used a cotton ball in my life, but I've got three daughters and a wife, and our house is lousy with them. They're all over the place. And so, so I don't know what they use them for. Take off makeup? I don't. Anyway, so they got these cotton balls. She's got these cotton balls. She splits open the bag. She goes into the bag of cotton balls and, and grabs them by the handful and starts rubbing them on the rock of unction. And as soon as, she's run, as soon as she's rubbed them a few times, she takes the cotton ball, she stuffs them back into the bag, she ties off the bag, she puts the bag in her backpack, zips it up, puts it on, and goes about her merry way. The mind boggles to think what she's going to do with those cotton balls. Perhaps when she gets home to her church, she's going to hand them out. This, these cotton balls touch the rock of unction. For what mysterious purpose, I don't have any idea. We are commanded in 1 Timothy 4, 7 and other places like it to have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, but instead, rather, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. God has given us his word. We should be like the wise man in Psalm 1 who meditates on it day and night, who, again, you need to be regularly intaking the word of God and attempting to live it out with God's help with the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how God has chosen for his people to operate in this world, not in the way of these itinerant Jewish exorcists 
who don't believe in God, who, don't, who are not followers of Jesus Christ, but who are invoking the name, cloaking themselves in, that, in what they think is Christian power in order to, what, fool God? Does anybody in this room think you can fool God? Fool God into letting them have a taste of Paul's power to cast out demons? God showed them otherwise, tangibly. They left that place naked and beaten up. I just want to remind you too that uh, just like the text says, it says, uh, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize. This is the demon talking. This is the evil spirit quoted in the words of scripture. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? Uh, James 2.19 says this, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Please do not make it your practice to say the words, I love and am a follower of Jesus Christ and fail to back that up with your life. I would say that's a very dangerous game you're playing, if that's you. All right, last point. I'm calling it breaking away, breaking away. Look at verses 17 to 20. And this is gonna nail down what I mean in the title of the sermon when I say the gospel is better than magic. Here it is, verse 17. And it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both, both Jews and Greeks, that's everybody. And fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Now, I can only imagine what that is. I've been, I have been worshiping Diana. I have been worshiping Artemis. I have been practicing this occult practice, whatever. Verse 19, and a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of all of them and, it, and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Um, word got out about the seven sons of Sceva. Word got out of what had happened to them at the hands of this spirit-possessed man. The contrast between those who are flim-flam men, con artists like the seven sons of Sceva and the Apostle Paul, the contrast became vivid so that uh, many in the city of Ephesus, which was no small city, began to see the contrast and began to fear God and to take on the name of the Lord Jesus. They became believers. Now, what's the evidence of that? Well, the evidence of that is that they started confessing and confessing their sin, divulging their practices. Now, here we go. We have this contrast. We have Paul, who's one guy. And there's, there's indications in the book of Corinthians that when you compare Paul with a guy like Apollos, there's really no comparison. Apollos apparently is handsome, articulate, smart, sharp, witty, and Paul is just a guy. He's just the average Joe, right? 
He's smart. He's, he studied under Gamaliel. He's a smart guy. But uh, as the world sees talent and ability, perhaps Paul is, a, is at a bit of a disadvantage. So you have Paul, and you've got one guy, and people are touching him with handkerchiefs and aprons and stuff, and then going and healing the sick and driving out demons. And then you've got these seven sons of a high priest, of a Jewish high priest. By the way, it's so fascinating to me. I don't know what to make of this. The Bible says, Luke records, that these seven sons of Sceva were sons of a Jewish high priest. So I'm going to believe that. I'm choosing to believe that. I just find it interesting that there's this extra biblical author named Josephus out there. Josephus, who spoke in his historical record about there were claims of a Jesus who was crucified on a cross and buried and he rose again. Now there's all these followers of Jesus. That Josephus that that kind of gives us a, an outsider, outside of Christianity view of, of how Christianity is, is looked at. Josephus tried or attempted to make an exhaustive list of all the Jewish high priests that there were. And Sceva was not on that list. So were these guys even bigger charlatans because they were walking around? You ever met somebody who does that? They claim around, they walk around and they claim to be somebody important because they're the son of somebody important, but you, you find out later it's not true or they're related, or they're name-dropping. I was once part of the Biden campaign. I was once part of the Trump campaign. And you find out it was just a bunch of... Uh, I, I think there's somebody in Congress that did a lot of that, right? Somebody who's in trouble and just was indicted. I forget what the guy's name is, but, but he, his whole campaign, it turns out, was a, a sham. Everything that he said that he had accomplished on his, on his resume was wrong. I wonder if that was true of the sons of Sceva. I'm choosing to believe they're high priest sons because that's what the text says. Anyway, so they were confessing their sins. And the gospel was having an effect on human, on human beings that I simply don't see magic ever doing. And that is, is that as they came to Christ, they began to change their mind. And remember the mind, the, it, it, as we think about what the Bible says about our minds, our hearts, it's the soul of our, our mind, our will, our emotion. They began to change. They began to confess their sins, to divulge their practices, and put their old practices behind them. Folks, that's called repentance. And they put that, they bore the fruit of repentance by taking these books. And oh, can I just tell you, if you go into my office, you're going to see a lot of books. Because we have, as human beings, figured out cheap and effective ways to mass produce copy after copy using printing practices and binding practices. But it was not so in these days. Everything was hand-copied. Everything was handmade and bound. These books would be very expensive to come by. And they're, they're bearing the fruit of repentance because they're taking their books and they're getting rid of them. They burned their books that taught them the magic arts. The gospel is better than magic. The cost of this was not cheap. The cost of their discipleship was quite expensive. I'll just read to you. You don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 14, beginning verse 25, and I'm just going to cut to the end where Jesus says in verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Folks, I fear, and I think 
it's just natural for me to do so, that we, if we're not careful, could fall into a category of people who say that we love Jesus with our mouths. We even pick up our Bible, carry it to church, attend church. We've been in it for so long, we've learned the lingo, and we can speak it to one another. But at the heart level, at the practice level, we're tinkering around with hidden sin, perhaps. We're not walking in the light as he is in the light. Let this text this morning be a real challenge to you and a real insight into how, uh, how that goes. Be like those people who were clearly sinners. They had once practiced the magic arts, but when they encountered the one true God through the disciples of Jesus Christ, Paul being one of them, and hearing the good news that your sins can be forgiven by following Jesus Christ. When they looked upon the effect of what had happened to the sons of Sceva and them trying to wrap their pagan practices and cloak it in Christian lingo, it was sobering. And it brought them to a point where they decided to change. They decided to be fully submitted to Jesus Christ. Decided that even their expensive occultic books on the black arts, the, dark, the magical arts, could not be kept any longer and needed to be thrust away from them. Not to be sold on eBay to another person. Not to be sold in the marketplace for someone's el- from someone else's consumption under the argument that perhaps we'll recoup some of the funds and use it for good. Destroy it. So, the answer to the question today is this. What insights can we, how can we become more discerning? Uh, Acts 19, 11 to 20 teaches us not to believe everything that is wrapped in Christian packaging, but to examine the doctrine and the fruit. To examine the doctrine and the fruit. This is the reason why when, uh, you know, when somebody, I don't want you to be theologically gullible, so I just got to tell you, just the the way I operate. When somebody comes along and says, hey, uh, there's a great new pastor in the area, he just moved to Delaware, and we should have him come speak at Delaware Christian School Chapel, or we should have him come to Delaware Bible Church and fill the pulpit. Uh, Pastor Scott, make that happen. My answer to that is always, let me get to know him. Let Let me figure out who this person is. It's not an immediate yes, just because someone says, when somebody hands me a Christian book, quote unquote, I look at it through the eyes of scripture. When somebody tells me about somebody who should come and speak, I look at that person and try to view them through the lens of scripture. Because that's what we are commanded to do. By way of possible application, here's a few things to think about. Don't suffer from theological gullibility. 
I wish there were a, a pill for it. It would cure a lot faster. But anyway, don't suffer from theological gullibility. Don't give in to everything that is cloaked in Christian language. And folks, the marketplace is filled with things like this. The, books, the Christian bookstores are filled with things that have the look and feel of Christianity. You'll flip the book over and you'll recognize two or three of the names that have blurbed it. But the principles that are contained in that book are often unbiblical. So be discerning. You've got to be wise, right? And in order to be discerning, you have to be in the Word. There's just no, there's no easy way out. To get healthy, you have to diet and exercise. To grow spiritually, you have to feast on the Word. And that, that's spiritual exercise, right? Memorize it. Put it into practice. Secondly, what worldly practices are hindering you from following Jesus? What worldly practices are hindering you from following Jesus. Today, in the world that we live in, demonic possession does not manifest itself the same way it did in New Testament times. It doesn't manifest itself like flopping on the ground or walking through uh, graveyards naked and, you know, like the Gerizim demoniac or something like that. Oftentimes today, Satan's grip on your life is because of a habitual secret sin that you are practicing that you have somehow become too embarrassed to acknowledge and to confess too caught up in it to help to get help perhaps thinking that your pastors your elders your fellow church members will shame you and I want to promise you this if you come to me come to any one of the pastors of this church, the elders of this church, confessing a sin, our only goal is to help you. Because we read the text the same as you do, and it says, you know, it gives this long list of sinners, and it says, but such were some of you. And we know <laughs> where we've been. But thanks be to God, he's grown us and changed us and shaped us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and he continues to do so because none of us in this room have yet reached perfection. Far from it. So, if, you're, if that's you, please come, confess, and get help. And then finally, number three, when are you tempted to believe the world's ways are more powerful than the ways of Jesus Christ? I sit, I, it seems to me that I'm a very strange and odd duck. I know you already think that's true. But it's because, of, it's because of my training in the scientific end of things and then my training in seminary that leads me to be in this really odd position where when I, I just see the world out there just falling left and right for what the science says and trust the science and science and science. When the scientists are sitting there making claims that I know are malarkey, are, are not scientifically even verifiable and yet the claim is to trust the science. I see people, even Christians falling for these things over and over and over uh, be careful be discerning. The only way to do that is to be in the word and in prayer, practicing the spiritual disciplines that God has instructed us in his word to practice the fellowship, the prayer the word Let's pray.
Father, you are our God and we are your people. And you have seen fit for us today to gather and you've given us the privilege to do so. We don't want to walk out of here the same people that we walked in. But slowly, over time, with your word instructing us, gathering in fellowship, singing your praises, the Holy Spirit among us taking up residence in our lives, we want to grow and change, become more like your son Jesus. Father, if any of us in this room have fallen off in the spiritual disciplines of the word of God, prayer, and all these things, the fellowship of the saints, may that be goal number one, is to get back in the word, back into fellowship, back into prayer. Father, uh, if there are things that need to be confessed and accountability that needs to be brought, I pray that each, each soul in this room would know that within the fellowship of the saints, there you will find acceptance, you will find love, you will find people who truly care and will speak to you the truth and do so in the most upbuilding up and edifying way possible. So Father, I pray that that, that would be the case and that f folks would feel comfortable confessing sin and, and coming closer to you. Father, bless this day. Thank you for our mothers. Thank you for the ladies that haven't had the privilege of childbirth but have adopted children of their own and have adopted spiritual children to look after, to care for, to pray about and to encourage along the way. We thank you for all these things and pray your blessing on the rest of this day. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Happy Mother's Day. You are dismissed.